Sammy Romani teaches politics and international relations at Oxford. He's the author of Russia in Africa and Putin's War on Ukraine. His articles appear in a range of top-tier publications. He's often on the BBC and other international broadcast media. His Twitter feed is granular and prolific. I've long been looking forward to talking with him. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too for this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Well, Dr. Romani, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Cliff. It's great to be here. Um, look, you know, I have a lot of questions for you, but, but you know, start by telling us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you developed a scholarly interest in Russia and Africa, which, by the way, might seem to be a, an odd combination, though I should say not, not for me, since as listeners to these conversations may know, I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union more than 50 years ago. And I was a New York Times correspondent in Africa more than 40 years ago. So talk about your intellectual and career and other development. That's a fascinating background. Yeah, with regards to mine, I mean, I'm originally from Canada. And oh. I did graduate at McGill. And then I did my master's in Russian East European studies over at Oxford. Because I was just uh, really quite fascinated by uh, Putin's uh, geostrategic maneuverings. And I felt that Russia was, in the contemporary sense, was being quite deeply understood, uh, misunderstood. I also was very, very interested in Cold War history and politics, and it kind of was a natural uh, development. I thought I was only going to be studying uh, Russian politics for one year, but then the annexation of Crimea happened, Russia got involved in Syria, and uh, the Russia-West relationship uh, really started to blow up while I was at Oxford. And I realized that studying this topic in greater depth would be of more and more interest. So I did a doctorate where I wrote about uh, Russia's evolving responses to popular revolutions, like the Euromaidan revolution, the Syrian revolution, the Arab Spring, and the concept of counter-revolution in Russian foreign policy and Russia's war against uh, global liberalism. And then I started branching out with a deeper examination of Russia's uh, global activities. And I got an advisory role uh, in conjunction with Professor Chris Miller at Tufts University uh-huh, sure. on the uh, with the U.S. Defense Department about Russia and Africa. I worked on that for nine months during the pandemic. It was fascinating. So I decided to write a book about the contemporary history of that relationship. And the Ukraine war broke out just a few months later. So that became the basis for my second book. Okay. <laughs> wow. You, 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 you picked a good subject to, 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 to take on when you think about it. By the way, you, you remind me that I, I follow Chris Miller. I follow... Um, um, Leon Aaron also, both of them are at AI. And it was interesting because I just remember I, that Chris Miller did predict that Putin would go into Ukraine, that this wasn't just performative, 100,000 troops on the border. Leon Aaron said, no, no, I don't. I think he's just uh, wa- waving his waving his sword and I don't think he'll actually go through with it. Do you happen to remember that? I mean, it was an interesting, it was very interesting at that period when we were all thinking about it, because I was looking at as many different Russia experts as I could, who were trying to predict what Putin would do and why. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was uh, really quite interesting that, you know, the Russian expert community was very divided on a lot of this. And also it was some of the hard security specialists and military analysts who weren't necessarily uh, Russia experts who actually were able to foresee this and predict this better than some of the actual area experts in some ways, which was a surprise. Because even here at Oxford, right? A lot of my colleagues and a lot of people like this were really getting involved in the domestic drivers of Russian interventions and the history of Russian interventions. And Russia has always done military interventions of this kind, but it was sure that the people were on its side. And also when 
they also took a lot of uh, risk-averse mechanisms, right? Like going to South Ossetia, but not for Tbilisi, going to Crimea and Donbass, but not for Kiev. And people assume that that risk aversion would continue. So the historians and the area specialists sometimes underestimated Putin's capacity for aggression, whereas the military analysts actually viewed it at the granular developments much more accurately, with the exception of two, obviously. I mean, I think Michael Kaufman and, and Rob Lee did a really, really fine job in terms of really seeing how those force buildups were coming and why this was different from anything we had seen before. Yeah, and, and I know your view and mine are pretty close here in that, it, it, certainly in this regard, there are those, uh, you know, kind of thinking of people like Mearsheimer and the other international relation kind of realist types who say, well, this came about because, you know, NATO is so aggressive and Putin's worrying that NATO is going to attack him. And I and I think, and I think you think that's nonsense. Putin yeah. never thought that Angela Merkel or Olaf Scholz was going to attack him. He never thought NATO was in that position. I th- My view very clearly, and I think you've said this differently than I'm about to, and I don't think you'll disagree with me, but feel free to, is look, Putin's got huge amounts of money, huge amounts of power. He, I mean, you know, he's got mansions, he's got palace on the Black Sea, he can kill people with impunity, does on a fairly regular basis. So what do you want for your, you know, 70th birthday at that point? Well, you want a legacy. And what is his legacy? I think when he looks in the mirror, he says, I see the 21st century czar of Russia, and it is my mission, my responsibility to restore the Russian Empire, which for a time was renamed, if not rebranded, the Soviet Empire. That's what I have to do. There's nothing else worth my time and energy in this last chapter of my life. That's kind of how I see it. Do you, you much disagree with that? Yeah, I think also definitely your points on NATO are, I think, are very well taken. It's important to keep in mind that in 2002, when Ukraine is making their first flirtations towards NATO membership, him and other Russian officials basically said it was a sovereign decision and a sovereign choice. And it was only when I think uh, Vladimir Putin was able to get mileage out of kind of trying to assert Russia's great power status by claiming that NATO was disrespecting them, that by fighting NATO, Russia was somehow making a reassertion on the world stage. That's when he managed to uh, really become with such this harsh uh, anti-NATO posturing. And that's why he came through with such unrealistic security guarantees, like kicking NATO out of countries like Romania and Bulgaria, where they had been for two decades. It wasn't a sign of somebody who was trying to negotiate a good deal for Russia's security. It was a sign of somebody who was trying to overturn the uh, existing world order, or at least show the Russian people that he was trying to do that, and that uh, he was uh, standing stuff for an expansive vision of Russian power. And that's why I think the new imperial thesis is obviously a lot more accurate and a lot more adept. And also, I think for Vladimir Putin, he was looking for something that would define his legacy, right? In the first yeah. uh, decade of his presidency, he defined his legacy by ending the Yeltsin era instability and by making sure the separatist movements didn't tear Russia apart, like what we saw in Chechnya. And he managed to create a rather false facade of economic growth based on uh, high oil prices and relatively unsustainable foundations. In the second decade, the economy of Russia was petering out. So he had to make it the, about the annexation of Crimea and had to make it about Russia's military modernization and reassertion as a global power, as we started seeing with their actions in Syria and their actions in other parts of the world. And now in his third decade, he needed something new that would cap it all off. And it wasn't going to come from the economic and the domestic side. His domestic agenda in the first few years of his fourth term had failed. So we had to look internationally. And uh, he figured that the West wasn't going to respond in a drastic way, and he underestimated Ukraine's strength, and he went into Ukraine. It's all true. And, and I, I want to add this, that he's – I give – Putin enough credit as an analyst that he knew that while there was talk about 
NATO having an open door policy and eventually Ukraine would be in. And there was a, he knew that wasn't going to happen because NATO requires consensus from all its members. And all he needed to say to the Germans, maybe to Macron, maybe to Hungary, maybe to, to Orban, I, I don't want you to do this. And they say, OK, we won't. After a look, at, I mean, look how or to, or to say it to Erdogan, look how difficult it has been to get Finland and hopefully now Sweden in. Uh, the, I, I, he, if what he wanted was to prevent Ukraine from coming in, he could do it. However, I will also say this: he could see developments in Ukraine that he wouldn't like, such a, such as increasing freedom. I was an election observer there in 2014 for the last election, and what I saw were Ukrainians being very proud and very pleased that they had political parties and that they could vote, and they wanted to show us election observers, look, we're doing it right, we're doing it well. And by the way, I would also say that. Zelensky's party, servant of the people, Sluk Narodi, was essentially an accommodationist party. It wasn't an anti-Putin or anti-Russian party. They kind of wanted to get along if they could. So for all, so what Putin did see next door was Ukraine becoming a fledgling democracy. That would upset him if he believes, as I think he does, that all Russians, including Ukrainians and others, need to look to the Kremlin for guidance, for leadership, for rule. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like when you look at his uh, essay in 2021, which is so uh, apocryphal, like and it's so kind of uh, allegorical about what we see later on in in hindsight, is that the Russians, the Ukrainians, and the Belarusians have a common identity, indivisible, and that also means a common uh, and shared vision of what an ideal political system should look like. So I think the democratization of Ukraine that we were seeing uh, in the post 2014 period and the Euromaidan revolution really, really uh, scared him and alarmed him because it created an alternative model of governance in the post-Soviet space. The Baltic states had already gone that route. Now, if Ukraine was going to go that route, it would just be, you know, in Eastern Europe, there's Russia and Belarus kind of holding the, the hands of autocracy. And even Belarus was under threat with the 2020 unrest as well. So I think that he really wanted to arrest that movement and kind of really uh, make a, a, an attack on any kind of liberal movements that would drag... Uh, post-Soviet republics further and further away from Russia's model of governance. And that was behind, I think, a lot of his uh, aggressive activities in Ukraine in 2022. I don't think it's right. All right, let's get a little bit current here. We just, uh, as as we're talking, uh, the, the the NATO summit in Vilnius is uh, uh, coming to an end. Um, there's no clear path for Ukraine to become part of NATO. That didn't, doesn't surprise me. I didn't think that that would happen there. It could have been done maybe more gracefully. I think it would have been better for Biden to play his cards closer to the vest and not say make it as clear as he seems to that he doesn't want Ukraine in NATO at this point. Uh, I don't think it could have happened because you're not going to get consensus on, 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 on Ukraine coming in or a pathway for that, I think there are probably, and this is maybe not unreasonable, various members of NATO say, look, that's a chip we want to have to play at any future negotiations, whether uh, Ukraine comes in, whether Ukraine doesn't. This is not for us to decide in an irrevocable way here, because that'll make it harder in the end to figure out an end game with Putin. Is that how you see what happened? What what do you see what happened at, at the Vilnius summit in general? That or other things that are that stick out in your mind? Well I think absolutely I think that you know the rhetoric really coming from the Biden administration, Ukraine's NATO membership is that there's in theory an open door, but we're not ready to accept them, is actually not too different from the statements that he was making before Russia invaded Ukraine. 
And uh, that was why the Russians should never have really feared NATO membership as that much of a possibility because the US, Germany, so many countries had that exact point of view. The one thing that would be interesting is if Dmitry Kuleba's uh, statement that the membership action plan and some of those intermediate steps would probably be scrapped if Ukraine eventually were to move in the direction of NATO membership, which would mean a relatively fast track accession after the war ends or after there's some kind of political settlement or ceasefire. That would be quite interesting if there were some discussions of any serious nature on that issue, because that would be a movement forward in the longer term. But I think, yes, the uh, Ukrainians uh, have moved in the direction where they really want NATO membership, but they've also resigned themselves to the fact that they, the best they can be is, as Alexei Reznikov put it, a de facto member of NATO, receiving NATO military technology, eventually, hopefully, NATO-class aviation like F-16s, but not really being an official and formal part of the alliance. And also, in any future negotiations with Russia, I have a feeling that there'll be a sizable number of NATO countries that will dangle the card of permanent Ukrainian neutrality as a means of kind of getting Russia to freeze the conflict. And I think that that, was, uh, that will stay. It was something that some in Ukraine were grudgingly willing to even talk about and accept in the Istanbul talks in March 2022. But a year later, it's much, much harder for the Ukrainians to accept that bill. Yeah, and I understand why, look, Zelensky sounded very disappointed and all that. I think I think he had to. Um, I think it's important for domestic reasons that I think he has to press on that. And I see why he did. I also think that from a NATO point of view and from a U.S. point of view, actually having Ukraine in NATO at some point would be a very good idea. Why? Because they do know how to fight. They are willing to fight. They are learning how to fight on NATO weapons. If it should happen that, for example, uh, Putin in a few years should invade Poland or Lithuania. Maybe uh, he wants to get uh, land bridge to Kaliningrad, right? Where, which is a, a for people who don't know, a Russian territory not contiguous with Russia because they, the Soviets took it from Germany in 1945. It's on the Baltic, hence where the Baltic fleet is based. Then, who would you rather have? Um, work, fighting alongside Americans against that. Would you rather the Germans? Would you rather the French? Or would you rather the Ukrainians? I would say the Ukrainians are more reliable in that, in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Because the Ukrainians know better than anybody else, obviously, how to deal with Russia's uh, military uh, tactics and military doctrine. And they have the uh, track record of, uh, of military success. So certainly, I think Ukraine could add a lot of strength to the alliance in terms of experience and in terms of uh, uh, yeah, basically, yeah, in terms of all, all the uh, all the assets that it brings to the table. And Zelensky, yes, his, his statements were very, very much motivated, I think, also by the domestic mood at the time. For example, the 39% of the uh, Ukrainians uh, in May of 2022 were okay with that. Uh, yeah, with, we said NATO membership was the absolute requirement at the end of the war. They were okay. Most majority were okay with some kind of security guarantees. Now, 58% say it has to be NATO membership. There's no uh, security guarantees are not enough. And Zelensky is really acknowledging the impact of the Bucha massacre, the impact of the daily attacks on civilians and missile strikes and all these things on Ukrainian public opinion. And he's uh, towing his line and his messaging really to satisfy the domestic audience. Just like early in his tenure, early in his presidency, he sought to uh, end the war in Donbass with negotiations with Russia and reviving the Steinmeier formula and, uh, and dealing with that. So he can be accommodationist and he can be pragmatic on the Russian issue, depending on where public opinion lies. But now in Ukraine, it's really NATO membership and full victory or nothing. Yeah. And, and, and we also just should remind people, 
there was a possibility for a more for a clearer path to NATO membership coming out of Vilnius, but not for an actual NATO membership because NATO is not going to bring any member who is in the midst of a war. To do that brings every NATO member into that war. That there was just no way that was going to happen, or probably could happen unless you really bent the rules. Again, there are workarounds one could imagine, but I but what you can't imagine is 31 NATO members coming to consensus about which workaround rules to have. Um, the, for the longer term, the question is NATO membership or what they call the Israel option, which is essentially is sort of the porcupine option, like with Taiwan, which, the idea that you make Ukraine so prickly, uh, so many spines that it's indigestible and that deters. And one could argue, I would certainly, that that should have been the case before the Ukraine invasion, before Russia invaded. In other words, Putin should have looked down and said, boy, I'd like to take Ukraine, but it's much too tough. Um, and we didn't, and, and that we, this is very much an FDD, um, tenant that deterrence is always preferable to war, but only strong deterrence makes it possible to avoid war. <laughs> it's not, it's not accommodationism, it's deterrence that actually works. That's sort of one of a, one of the things we, one of the our articles of, of, of faith that we push, I would say. Anyway, I don't mean to go on too long about that. I, I, I do want to talk about Sweden a little bit because now Sweden coming in seems to me, and this gets back to Russia's Baltic fleet being in, in Kaliningrad, with Sweden and Finland as part of NATO, the Baltic Sea becomes pretty much a NATO lake. And this is a real failure for Putin to have his Baltic fleet in Kaliningrad facing NATO up, up pretty much on, on all sides. Would, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that that definitely is something that the Russians are concerned about, and ironically, something that the Russians, of course, brought upon themselves, because there were no debates about Sweden and Finland joining NATO in a very serious way before the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine. And uh, the Estonians uh, really poked the bear over there by basically saying that the acceptance of Sweden and Finland would actually make uh, the Baltic Sea and NATO lake. And the Russians reacted furiously with that. The Russian foreign ministry was actually releasing uh, statements on their telegram channel reminding the Swedes about their victory in the Great Northern War back in the 18th century, which just kind of shows just how provocative and how, how much of a hot potato this issue is inside Russia. I mean, Dmitry Medvedev and some other Russian hardliners have made a series of threats as to what they might do in terms of responding to uh, the, this new th threat. One of them would be obviously the movement of nuclear submarines in the Gulf of Finland, the increasing of the nuclear weapons presence inside Kaliningrad to complement their what they claim is the movement of tactical nukes inside Belarus. Another thing would be the expansion of Russia's uh, manpower on uh, on or around near St. Petersburg and on the Finnish-Russian border, which is hard to believe because where is that manpower going to come from when so many people need to staff the front lines in Ukraine? So the Russians have come up with a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors and predictable uh, retaliation threats, but they don't really seem to be very credible. I think that they're in a situation where their influence in the Baltic Sea is uh, at probably its weakest point in, in modern history. And I want to make sure people understand the historical reference you're making. Most will, most on this podcast will, but so, so I, I think it's fair to say that when Putin thinks of himself as a czar, he has in mind Ivan the Terrible, Catherine the Great, and particularly Peter the Great. And what did Peter the Great do? He won a war against Sweden, and the part of the land he took it became what Leningrad or Petersburg, which it was it is now and was before it was Leningrad, right? So he's thinking of of of, of that. There's also this historical reference that I'd like to 
get your thoughts on. And that it's a war that many people don't know was fought, which is the Winter War, 1939. On the really World War II is beginning, and what do the Soviets do? They attack Finland. And it's a little like the attack, and I, I think, you tell me, a little bit like the attack on Ukraine, because the, the Soviets are saying, look, Finland was once part of the Russian Empire. We want Finland to be part of the Soviet Empire, so we're going to attack. The Finns fought courageously. They fought really hard. They won in the sense that they weren't conquered. They lost about 10% of their territory, however, which is interesting. And they were... The word we used to have, you know, you probably know this word from reading history, you don't remember it, is, is Finland was Finlandized. Finlandization was a term used during the Cold War for a country that was independent, but with limits. It was only so much they could do that Finland could do, couldn't antagonize the bear next door. And Finland was not totally, totally free. It had to be neutral. I don't know if this becomes at some point uh, a, a sort of echo in the Ukraine war but one but it seems to me one could imagine it do you have any thoughts on uh, on the winter war and, and 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 its echoes here so many parallels absolutely <laughs> i mean in 1939 the soviet union basically said that finland uh, and its perimeter were posing a threat to the soviet territory so they demanded that the finns basically give up large areas of their territory around the gulf of finland islands karelia uh, to the soviets in order to prevent a full-scale invasion which of course the finns uh rejected. That's very similar to what the Russians were saying before the February 22 invasion of Ukraine. The Russian media was warning that Ukraine, backed by NATO, was somehow going to threaten some of the border areas of Russia, like uh, Belgorod, like Kursk, and that needed to be preempted only through the use of force. And they, they had to see Donbass, they had to see Crimea, uh, and, and recognize Russia's control over those, maybe through negotiations, as, as a means of preventing uh, further aggression. Then the Soviets actually invade, they get expelled by the League of Nations, like Russia gets expelled from so many uh, European institutions like the Council of Europe, and then they uh, suffer have such heavy casualties, like five to one compared to the Finns, and have to uh, freeze the conflict with a guarantee of Finnish neutrality. And I think that the Russians will probably try to push for the same kind of thing, particularly if they find that the territory that they held de facto before the February 22 invasion, so Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea, is under threat to Ukraine's counteroffensive. I think they might try to push for a similar kind of ceasefire and gambit. And, and am I right in thinking that, look, there's Ukrainian nationalism, the idea that Ukraine is a separate culture, a separate nation from Russia. It's been around a long time. No one has supercharged it the way Putin now has. Maybe Stalin, maybe Stalin, but certainly, but maybe Putin more so, no? Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, it's just amazing the degree to which there is uh not just nationalism and pride in, in Ukraine, but unity and a common sense, a sense of a common destiny, right? With the overwhelming support, I think, for membership in the European Union, the overwhelming support for membership in NATO that has occurred as a result of Russia's two invasions of Ukraine in 2014 and 2022 is really quite astounding. In the late 1990s, only 15% of Ukrainians were certain that they wanted full-fledged NATO membership. And the popularity of the EU in the eastern half of the country was very, very low. Now it's overwhelming majorities, regardless of where you look. Is 79% of people in the East want NATO membership? 93% of the people in Lviv want it. So they've united Ukraine, not just as a, as a nation, as a people, but also in support of the Euro-Atlantic course, in support of liberalism, in support of democracy, and also in terms of uh, opposing Russian infringements on their sovereignty. And that's a change that I think is going to be extremely difficult to undo for generations. 
in the in the east in Donbass, which, as you say, was first invaded in 2014. Do you know this? How much have the demographics changed? Have those who consider themselves ethnic Russians left at this point? Um, uh, have they been driven out? Have they decided to go? Uh, there were those who I, 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 I know I've read this from reliable sources who were Russian speakers, didn't speak Ukrainian, nonetheless felt themselves Ukrainians once the Russians invaded because they were so offended by the idea that they'd have to uh, kiss Putin's ring and report to the to the Kremlin. What, what do we know about? Because if, if it were to be a Finnish winter war model, the 10% or so of Ukraine that would be lost uh, as a, as a, in, in a frozen conflict or a settlement of some kind would, I assume, be Donbass, and I'm not sure who lives there at this point. Well, the thing is, the uh, Donbass is so deindustrialized de over the course of the past nine years, has also seen so many demographic shifts that it's uh, it, it's quite different from where it was uh, before 2014. Right, Donetsk was the biggest oblast of Ukraine. It was the economic uh, uh, and locomotive, particularly in terms of manufacturing, in terms of steel, in terms of uh, metallurgy, in terms of uh, various other me- mechanisms of production. And now it's uh, seen uh, so many cities, one after another, Mariupol, Bakhmut, uh, Marinka, to be basically completely leveled to the ground. So it's just a fundamentally different place. In Crimea, there's been actually a change in the demographics because many Russian nationals have actually settled there. And the population has become substantially more Kremlin-friendly than it was before 2014. But inside Donbass, I think uh, there is a sizable resistance. I mean, if the Ukrainians were to uh, advance deeper into Donetsk and Luhansk, they would have a lot of local collaborators, many of whom were ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, who have been frustrated by the totalitarianism, the isolation, and the lack of opportunities that they've experienced over the course of the past nine years. You know, the other thing that's happened in in Crimea, and I know this from uh, last time I was in in, in Kyiv, a lot of Crimean Tatars left Crimea after the Russian annexation because they didn't want to live under the Russians and move to Ukraine. Now, they would move back if Crimea, I, I think they would, a lot of them, if if Crimea were retaken um, by Ukraine. But that was a, a fairly, I think, so you tell me if I'm wrong, a fairly substantial population. And of course, a, an old population, the Tatars of, of Crimea. I mean, Stalin exiled them during World War II, if I remember, but they came back. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Stalin, you have made them a key victim of his dispersion techniques. And we saw them end up uh, with now a population of about 239,000 strong in Uzbekistan, which is kind of a legacy of, of that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Crimean Tatars definitely would be inclined to come back if the uh, Ukrainians managed to liberate Crimea. It's interesting that the head that Zelensky's appointed uh, of the commission that's going to try to reincorporate Crimea into Ukraine is Timila Tsheva. She's a Crimean Tatar activist. And she is very, very committed to, uh, number one, mobilizing local support uh, of Crimean Tatar partisans against Russia uh, in the event of uh, of Ukraine reaching the Crimean Peninsula, mm. or two, resettling the people. All right, here's what uh, in the, really has has taken me by surprise. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, I mean, I followed this, you did very carefully his moving his troops uh, from camps in Ukraine to Rostov on Don, and then there was the uh, the column marching north to Moscow, and then it stopped, and then he knocks out uh, helicopters and a command airplane, killing Russians. He's Putin calls him a traitor. 
Lukashenko of Belarus says, well, um, I've brokered a kind of settlement. He'll, uh, Rigozhin will come to Belarus. And uh, and then Putin says, okay, Wagnerians, they can go home, they can go to Belarus, or they can contract with the Ministry of Defense. Uh, but I must say, I'm among those who thought, okay, it's it's not going to be long before Putin decides to give some plutonium tea to Prigozhin or gets uh, him or pushes him out of a window. And then we hear that he's in Moscow and he's in Petersburg and he is having tea with Putin and they're getting along. What, do you have a theory about what's going on here? Well, I think it's really quite interesting. I think Prigozhin uh, found himself with his back to the wall in the uh, middle of June. And he realized that by July the 1st, the Wagner Group had to be kind of signed on to the Russian Ministry of Defense. All its forces had to come or their forces would be decommissioned. And uh, Vladimir Putin had basically agreed with that policy. So Prigozhin was forced to either see his forces and his uh, business empire be partially overseen by two people he despises, the Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and the Chief of the General Staff and Commander of the Armed Forces in Ukraine, Valery Gerasimov or uh, do something to resist that and to prevent that from happening. So what he decided to do was to effectively do a hostage-taking type scenario. So he goes into uh, into Rostov, seizes control over the uh, Southern Military District headquarters there without firing a shot, presumably recognizing that he had some kind of an ally helping him there. Maybe it was General Servikin, maybe it was someone else, but he had some allies there. And then threatening to make an attack on Moscow in the hopes that Putin would cave and fire Shoigu and Drazimov, but keep Wagner as an independent unit. The first part of the of his uh, proposal didn't go to plan. All the personnel seemed to remain in place, even Drazimov. And the, the Wagner Group has been forced to hand over a substantial amount of its military assets and personnel to the defense ministry. But Prigozhin was not completely destroyed, and Prigozhin has uh, maintained a, a seat at the table with Putin uh, regardless. I think it's in part because of the fact that Putin likes to maintain multiple centers of power in the security sphere. He's cognizant of the fact that the Wagner forces created the only gains that Russia has achieved in an entire year, Solidar and Bakhmut. And also, Prigozhin's empire in Africa is not replaceable in the short term. So Prigozhin survived and, and leveraged it, but I don't think he got what his ultimate goals were, which were a sweeping change of Russia's military leadership. He didn't. Now, from Putin's point of view... On the one hand, you would think as a matter of honor to show he's a tough guy, you know, he really would have he would have to kill Prigozhin for what he did. On the other hand, maybe this shows a certain streak of uh, pragmatism on his part where he says, look, this wasn't against me. It was against Shoigu. And he's, you know, Sergei Shoigu has not been the best defense minister, but I really like the guy. He's my buddy. And I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to knock him off. I guess I can't, there's no replacement for Prigozhin. I mean, he does what he does, and I don't know who else could quite do it. So the heck with it. I'll just sit down with him, say, you know, you were really naughty, and uh, don't do this again. And uh, here's what I need from you in terms of uh, the work I expect you to do. And we'll let bygones be bygones. That doesn't sound like the way a tyrant and a despot, which is how I think of Putin, acts. But there's a certain level of pragmatism. If you were, I were, you were Putin's advisor, you know, grand vizier, we'd say, look, you know what, from your point of view, yeah, keep Prigozhin, you know, slap him around a little bit, but don't kill him. I think that could be partially the case. I mean, he's very cognizant of the fact that Sergei Shoigu is uh, 
very weak as a defense minister. He's disrespected by large swathes in the military just because he came from the emergencies ministry, which is kind of seen. He's as, not a military guy. He's not a but, he's not a soldier, not really. No, so soldier law, exactly, right? And also he's been now implicated quite convincingly in the theft of uh, of some of Russia's military budget and modernization and misuse of funds. Uh, because of the poor performance of the Russian military, we've been kind of making these kind of links. So, yeah, I mean, I think he has a lot of reservations about him, too. He won't dismiss him right now because he'll be caving too much to the ultranationalists who hate him and, and caving to Prigozhin. But he wants to maintain multiple centers of power, I think, in the security and the defense sphere. And Prigozhin serves a purpose for him, certainly in Africa and also, I think, in eastern Ukraine. But uh, what, what's important to remember is that Putin rarely enacts retribution against enemies very quickly or very mm. immediately. He often takes a long, long time before he actually does this. Like, look at people like Berezovsky, or look at people like uh, the Russian dissident who got hung like uh, in 2012, or Boris Nemtsov, or uh, Alexei Navalny. Like, people who do uh, stand up to him, I mean, sometimes it takes many years before dealing the final shot. So I don't think that we should completely rule out that one day Putin mm. might uh, mistrust Prigozhin and, and turn on him again and enact retribution much later. Right. And knowing that, of course, might be a reason for Pigosian to mind his manners going forward and try to please the Tsar as best he can so that he, they, he, he so that the Tsar is merciful and doesn't destroy him on a, because, uh, because he's no longer valuable. Right. That may, that would that would make some sense, actually. That would definitely make sense. Yeah. I mean, Pigosian is probably going to be a lot more quiet, but not necessarily entirely quiet. Right. He still is defending you know, the March for Justice, as he called it, and the uh, goals that he was trying to pursue with the mutiny as being uh, just, and he was predicting that the Wagner Group is going to achieve some great military victory. So he's not completely hanging his hat or giving up on the messaging that was uh, so uh, obvious to him. But one thing he might do is not criticize the reasons why Putin invaded Ukraine again, or depict Putin as being basically beholden to oligarchs and Shoigu and being clueless, which is kind of what he did uh, before the mutiny. I think that that was a red line that he won't cross again. You know, this point I want strikes me as interesting. Um, Prigozhin is an oligarch, but he's different from the other oligarchs in that most of the oligarchs, as I understand it, they got there because, you know, you were the commissar of a factory and suddenly you realized with the transition away from socialism, you could be the owner of the factory and now you were a billionaire. And that was even better than being a commissar. But he did it differently. He did it by building these, you know, starting with a hot dog stand and then building a restaurant and then a casino and then a catering business and then catering to the schools and then to the military. In other words, and then doing uh, disinformation. I mean, he was I mean, he's actually been very resourceful. Uh, even though he, when you when you see him in his his tapes, he seems like a total madman. He has actually he has actually built things for for Putin. Absolutely, he has. I mean, it's an incredible story, right? He spent nine years in a Soviet prison, and then he in his twenty his twenties. I mean, that's that's an important part of your life to spend in prison. But I but I'm sure he learned a few things there too. He learned a few things exactly. Yeah, and then he was a hot dog uh, vendor, right? and as you said, and he just became a built this uh, empire. And uh, it's interesting because his uh, Business empire, obviously, was inextricably linked, perhaps more than any other oligarch, to actual loyalty to Putin, right? Concord Catering depended so much on the defense ministry contracts. If it's true that he earned $1 billion from catering last year, that's a substantial part of his business, that where is those contracts going to come from now? Also, the Russian state is admitted to funding the Wagner Group, which is something that they denied for so many years. And now, how is he going to finance his operations? It doesn't seem as if uh, gold and diamonds from Sudan and Central African Republic are going to be enough. And foreign donors to the Wagner Group, 
like the United Arab Emirates, who the U.S. implicated, are no longer willing to take those risks. So it's really uncertain, though, now exactly how Prigozhin is going to fund his empire now that Putin and him have had a falling out, unless something secretly was agreed in that June 29th meeting. We have to see. Okay. Okay. And I want to get to that and to Africa, but I have one more question about Ukraine before I do, because I'm just interested in your in, in your take on this. Hypothetical. If 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 Volodymyr Zelensky had not been the president of Ukraine when the Russians invaded, if he or if he had said to the Americans, you know what, I'll take the ride. Thank you very much, would Ukraine have been conquered? Well, I think Zelensky's leadership has been extremely important for a variety of aspects. Number one, I think he's done a masterful job at at keeping hope and keeping optimism amongst the Ukrainian people, even during the darkest days of the war. And I think that even phantom things like the ghost of Kiev or things like that kept morale up. Ukraine's military victories have always been, he's really, really communicated them very well. And he's always like, by staying in Kiev and by staying in Ukraine and by showing that he's there with the people, he was, that was really, really important. Also, I think Zelensky played an important role in, along with Reznikov and Kaleb, I think all of them have been effective in really convincing international partners to cross the red lines and their fears of escalation risks time and time again and give Ukraine as much of the weapons that it needs. And I, I don't know whether another Ukrainian president, at least from the previous uh, yeah. several, would have been able to have done that in such a convincing way. So I think Zelensky's leadership is very important, but ultimately Russia's military failure was because of the failure of their own military doctrine. The fact that they hadn't uh, change from an attritional model of warfare, the fact that all the supposed reforms after the 2008 Georgian War never really took effect, then their lack of logistics and their constant overestimation of the degree to which ethnic Russians and Russian speakers would welcome them as liberators. So Russia shot itself in the foot even more than Zelensky defeated Russia, but Zelensky's leadership did play a key part. All right. I mentioned that you wrote a book on Russia in Africa. I don't know if anybody's ever thought of even doing that before, <laughs> written a book about Russia and Africa. But this is very pertinent because most of Russia and Africa is the Wagner force in Russia and, 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 and Africa. Uh, I, I would, uh, by last count, what they're in, more than maybe 18 different African countries you've got Wagner forces. Um, and what they're doing in these countries, we'll go a little bit through some of them, is pretty pretty awful it's generally speaking in other words what i as i understand it you go into a like the central african republic and you say to the dictator there look we'll protect you we'll take care of your enemies they're not going to be a problem for you but you've got gold and diamonds here and we want a, a substantial cut do we have a deal or not and once you the, the dictator says yes these guys are riding around in their you know big vehicles uh making the peasants leave from the roads that they hit somebody it's tough on them um it's very imperialist and colonialist though i don't think it's been recognized as that by well say the un for example and the U and, the, and those who usually are in a fury about 19th century colonialism and i think tend to ignore 21st century colonialism because there's also chinese colonialism by the way in africa um, that's, uh, that may be, maybe even more massive and more destructive than Russian colonialism, but we can leave that off unless you have particular opinions on it. Yeah, I think that basically what you described with regards to the Wagner group is actually quite, uh, accurate. And it's interesting to see that they basically are very, very good at targeting, uh, either warlords with, uh, limited international recognition, like, uh, Khalifa Haftar or in Libya, in Libya, let's say, yeah, yeah. Or sanctioned to have their backs to the wall, like, you know, Omar al-Bashir. And then uh, 
the Tuatara and some others, and really trying to insert themselves as the uh, primary protector. And they do a lot of things for these regimes, right? They offer bodyguarding services. They offer limited defense for counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. They guard mines and mineral resources. They carry out information campaigns to steer the uh, public in their direction and exploit anti-Westernism and pair those things together to increase support for existing regimes. They carry out election interference on their behalf. They uh, And they involve themselves in everything, like in CAR, from the polling stations to the postal services. I mean, services. that's really, really interesting that they are almost uh, unmatched in that regard. They also, in CAR and uh, Central Africa, they put on a beauty contest for yeah, Central African women. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, you had these women in gowns parading before the the Wagner the, the Wagner forces. Now they're also involved in all. Again, there's no laws that really apply to them when they're in these countries. Am I right? There's no laws that apply to them. That's the biggest problem, right? That's why they've been accused of you know not only mass murders of civilians, like you know the Mora massacre in Mali happened at the same time as Busa Bucha, just as destructive, and it was we uh, got a small fraction of the coverage. Agbabo in Central African Republic. And they often also work with the uh, local security forces and bring out their worst instincts and uh, encourage war crimes and criminality coming from them, too. So they make repression worse all around. They carry out rapes. They carry out so many criminal activities and nobody can prosecute them. So it's really, really uh, a real scourge, I think, uh, on human rights. And that 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 poses a problem, right? Because uh, at, when I was talking and interviewing people in Central African Republic, in Bangui, people respected the Wagner Group because they brought civility to the capital. But where they were actually operating, like in Lake Chad or in the Cameroon CAR border, they were, when they saw the worst effects of it, the Russians are reviled. But the problem is they're so closely linked into the security apparatus, and France have left, the Americans don't want to get engaged. There's really no other option. So they've captured the state. Uh, uh, Mali is interesting to me only because I spent a fair amount of time in, uh, in Francophone Africa years ago, right? And the French were in Mali. The French liked the idea of being in countries that were part of their, uh, uh, that were colonies where they could prop them up like Chad. I remember seeing the French Foreign Legion in Chad. Essentially, the Mali and Junta uh, pushed out the French, said, sorry, you're no longer welcome here and brought in the Wagner group and said they're, they're better, they're better allies for us. They're better friends. We like, we'd rather be with them than with you. Pretty, pretty insulting to the French, is it not? Yeah, very insulting to the French. And I think that the Russian information machinery did a masterful job in Mali in terms of priming these sentiments uh, for many years. For example, they, they used their Francophone uh, media outlets, like Sputnik Francophone, like French outlets that were run from Tunisia, to claim that the French were not actually carrying out counterterrorism missions. They were actually just trying to steal the uranium and the gold reserves from Mali. And then putting them under Wagner under Russians' control, they somehow were decolonizing them and liberating them from Western neocolonialism. They also vaunted and praised the successes of the Russian military in Syria and tried to compare that to the inefficacy of Operation Barkhane and the French counterterrorism operations and created the illusion that Russia would be able to perform much better in this kind of setting. And uh, then Asimi Goida, a coup happens, and he finds himself with very strained relations with France. And uh, all this uh, information warfare has moved a substantial portion of the Malian population against the French and towards the Russians. And he decided, decided to sign a deal with the Russians and kick the French out. So it was, this was quite a big success for the Russians in terms of manipulating public opinion and in terms of really uh, establishing alliances in the Malian military to get a partnership. But Russia hasn't delivered, right, in terms of counterterrorism, in terms of even guarding the gold mines, 
in terms of actually carrying out any results. But Goida is isolated and Goida is stuck, just like Qatar and CAR, and he can't really go anywhere else. And, and uh, describe a little bit about what's going on in, Su- in Sudan, where you have this terrible civil war and Wagner may decide who wins, no? Well, I think that it's uh, very interesting because there's the same kind of division between the Russian ministries and Prigozhin on the mm-hmm. Sudan war. I think that uh, the Russian foreign ministry is more inclined to engage directly with Burhan and they view the Sudan Armed Forces chief, and they view him as their best gateway to a potential uh, Red Sea naval base in the Port of Sudan. And that's because the Russian Foreign Ministry and Defense Ministry had tried to engage with Hameti, but he kept flip-flopping on the lease conditions, and he, was, he proved to be very hard to work with. Fergosian, however, has got a clear link to Hameti because they'd worked together in Libya, uh, where his forces were fighting alongside Haftars, and also he guards the gold mines that provide Fergosian with so much of his revenue. So he uh, is going to work with them. So it's maybe interesting that it's not just Russia deciding the outcome of what happens in Sudan, but Prigozhin and Hemeti facing off against the Russian ministries and, and Burhan to some degree. Maybe Putin will have quelled that now with the mutiny. But these these uh, unrests and these dissensions inside the Russian in, inner power circles run quite deep and extend well beyond Ukraine. Do you think, and I guess you, you wouldn't know this, but you could... Is Wagner in Africa self-financing and even turning a profit, or do they need Russian subsidies to, to, to do what they're doing there? If you listen to Vladimir Putin's speech last week, you think that everything they do is beholden to the Russian uh, government. But the actual truth is a lot more mixed and a lot murkier. For example, when I was researching Wagner's financing techniques in Libya, they had Eastern Libyan uh, donors who had access to oil ports, some of them were under sanctions. They didn't know how to get the oil out, so they gave cuts of those reserves to to Wagner and help them get into those port areas. Also, yeah, we had saw the UAE potentially playing a role according to Pentagon reports. Um, with regards to uh, their for the financing of their operations in Sudan and CAR, it seems to be contracts from the government paying them uh, for bodyguarding and security services, perhaps in collateral in terms of getting minerals out. So I think that Wagner's uh, operations in Africa are relatively self-sustaining and relatively self-financing, and in some cases may even turn a profit for the Russian state because Sudanese gold is going to the Russian central bank and it's helping to buttress a bit against the impact of sanctions in a very small way, but it's still doing something. So uh, whereas in Ukraine, I think that he doesn't have the external financing mechanisms that were necessary. And his Ukraine operations are probably much more funded by the Russian state. So there's a Wagner in Africa that's actually running a successful business model. And there's a Wagner in Ukraine that's really just an extension of the Russian military. Uh, but with Prigozhin being this kind of maverick leader, who kind of uh, is running the operations himself. Which also might suggest that Putin is pragmatic enough to say, okay, I, if I want to continue these operations in in, in Africa, and I do for, for any number of reasons, power and money among them, I probably need Prigozhin. I don't see a deputy that can just step in and take over and do this. And I don't. And the last thing I need is for our our, our Wagner operations in, in 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 Africa to fall apart. It's an important part of empire building, and it's important to me. Exactly. I mean, the Soviet superpower status in Africa, Soviet superpower status elsewhere in the former third world. I mean, Russia wants to replicate that as much as possible. They can't do it through ideological clients and through the kind of deep investments in every sector of the economy and society that the Soviet Union could do. But they can do that by having a diverse array of partnerships across the globe and uh, a substantial informal military presence. And that's why I think Wagner is very important, because there's really nobody who can step in and play the role that Wagner is playing right now. 
I mean, uh, Gazprom, interestingly, on the day of the mutiny, was talking about expanding their presence in Africa to satisfy the two and a half times increase in natural gas demand by 2050. Gazprom, of course, has a private security company themselves that has been even fighting on the front lines in the Ukraine. But it doesn't have the size, the infrastructure in the security sphere to step in for Wagner. Maybe in a few years, it might, but it certainly doesn't have it now. And that's why Putin needs to stick with the Pergosian in Africa, whether he likes him or not. All right, let's just digress on this for one minute and make sure people understand. Gazprom is a huge Russian energy giant. It has its own, really, its own private army. And actually, we talk about Wagner, and we, everyone knows Wagner, but there are any number of smaller private armies in Russia, even though theoretically that's not even supposed to be legal. Um, so the question is... You know, what do these armies do and how do they do it and why don't they rely on the Ministry of Defense? And by the way, we should just point out that this is really interesting that the Chechens have essentially a private or autonomous army. Right. And that private and that's incredible because people remember that Chechnya, which is kind of ethnically and religiously different, but part of the Russian Empire, there was a secessionist movement, first Yeltsin, and then even more Putin crushed it in the most brutal manner. And now there's essentially a quisling, isn't there? Hidrov, um, who, who runs his own little army, but in support of Putin. Do I have that right? And is there anything else people should understand about how this all, all works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, private military companies in uh, Russia are technically illegal, but uh, there are so many exceptions and exemptions on this legislation, some of which are actually blatant contradictions of the law that allow these uh, apparatuses to operate. I think uh, Kadyrov uh, has played a vital role in crushing... uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the head of the Chechen military unit, and essentially, he's essentially... Putin's guy in Chechnya, right? This is just so we know who he is. Yeah. And his father yeah, exactly. was. Yeah. His father was uh, a figure who was all part of the Chechen separatist movement. He became, he struck, eventually struck a deal with Russia. His son, Ramzan, came in in 2007. He's played an important role in terms of uh, keeping Chechnya uh, underneath uh, Putin's control. Also, he's played an important role in Russia's outreaches to the Islamic world. I mean, to countries right. like Saudi Arabia, or to countries like the uh, UAE or Bahrain or other places and uh, the Muslim world more broadly. So he's gotten quite a bit of prestige from that, and that allows him to run a private army, and a private army that he knows is completely loyal to the uh, uh, the, the Russian state. So they prevents these Chechen men from uh, engaging in separatist movements or threatening him, and actually uses that manpower and their battle-hardened fighters for a purpose of advancing Russia's interests. I think the Russian Ministry of Defense probably played a role in creating some of these other uh, rival private companies, like Gazprom's Dream and Torch militias, they were, which were used in Ukraine. I think probably because they wanted to uh, create private companies that could have a similar kind of efficiency to what Wagner had in terms of making decisions on the ground, but would be a dilution of Prigozhin's uh, power in that sphere. Hmm. And are they good l- little militaries, these little autonomous, independent, whatever militaries? Are they, are they pretty, or it varies? It really varies a lot. Yeah. I mean, Kader, Kaderov's army, the Kaderovsi, were notorious for their ill-discipline, right? They're famously nicknamed <laughs> TikTok army, right? Because they just had a lot of uh, of show and a lot of flash, but they did very little. I mean, they were involved in Kiev trying to uh, take over the capital. They were trying to uh, assassinate Zelensky. They obviously went nowhere. And then Wagner had to step in. They also couldn't do it. They have fought alongside Wagner forces uh, quite effectively in Luhansk. But with such a heavy loss of life that it's hard to even call that effective. So that's really where they are. And the others, I mean, 
the Gazprom PMCs, just not enough forces. They're very, very small. And uh, we haven't really gotten a clear picture as to whether they're uh, any more effective or less effective than the regular Russian military at this point. All right. Last topic for today uh, is this. Uh, what do you see as the likely outcome um, of, of the war in uh, of Russia's war in Ukraine? I mean, it's very hard to predict, but people constantly ask this. Do you, do you see there a, a most likely outcome? Do you see several likely outcomes? What, what do you see happening? The, the counteroffensive, which is underway, is I'm not going to say it's going badly. I will say it's going slowly for, and for good reason. The Russians are very dug in. They've got minefields all around them. It's uh, the Ukrainians don't have the close air support they would, but they will have when they have the F-16s at a certain point. Um, anyhow, do you see an out an, a likely outcome? I, uh, it's certainly a question being asked. Well, I think that Ukraine is not going to achieve the kind of blitz that it got in uh, September and October of last year when they really managed to uh, effectively uh, take over all of what was left of Kharkiv. They managed to take over Laman near Donetsk and also push the Russians out of Kurzan. And that was due to the fact that Russia had a severe manpower shortage, and they also had not invested at all in the defensive side of warfare with the fortifications. Now Russia's got a lot of manpower in terms of conscripts, at least compared to what it had before, but uh, maybe untrained manpower, but still people, and still got a lot of uh, fortifications and uh, and uh, landmines and other uh, things that just make it very difficult to advance quickly. And the F-16s may not be coming to the battlefield until March 2024. The training is only beginning in August. So it's still a while until the Ukrainians are going to get the air support that they need. So I think we're going to see incremental but and noteworthy but not game-changing gains for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think especially in or around the uh, flanks of Bakhmut and perhaps in Bakhmut itself. If Russia lost part of Bakhmut, that would be a real embarrassment given how much resources they've lost and expended in terms of taking it over. They may also make some gains in Zaporizhia and the southern part of the country uh, and move to, towards Melitopol, which is a key supply chain nexus for the Russian military in Donbass. And we might see some other gains in in other parts of the, the front lines. But I think that this war is definitely going to continue on until 2024. The Russian offensive capacity is blunted and it's really unclear how that returns into play. So I think that this war will probably be going on for, for quite a long time, and much will depend, obviously, on things like the outcome of the 2024 presidential election and other things that determine how much support Ukraine gets going forward. Do you see Putin at any point uh, deciding that he does need to negotiate not necessarily a settlement, but a frozen conflict as he go to Macron or Schultz or Erdogan or, or Xi Jinping and say, okay, I, I can't win. I need at least a pause, see what you can get me. Um, or maybe he says, I can't get all the country. I should have just gone into Donbass. And maybe that's, by the way, that, that was a question I was thinking of asking you. If he had, if, if he had, if Putin had decided not to try to take the whole enchilada, but only to do what I think Biden thought he would do, a minor incursion, say, okay, it's time I just took Donbass once and for all, and maybe a land bridge, could he have succeeded at that? I've asked you a mess of different questions here, but sort it out as you will. Yeah, I think that, you know, but Vladimir Putin is under a lot of pressure from the ultranationalists not to give in under any uh, means possible. And these are people who supported and sympathized with Prigozhin's mutiny. These are people like, you know, like the, the outspoken voices would be people like MH17 perpetrator Igor Gherkin. But there's lots of these kind of people buried in the Russian military, the Russian National Guard, Rosvardia, and many other institutions. 
And I think that uh, Putin might see his most effective strategy to try to outlast Western arms supplies and outlast Western resolve, banking on uh, some bad exogenous developments like the 2024 elections going uh, in, in a way that leads to less support for Ukraine afterward and things like this, rather than trying to risk a peace settlement right now. So that's why I think that it's unlikely he's going to try to look for an off-ramp and the Ukrainians are really, really disinclined to give any kind of off-ramp or make any kind of territorial concessions. I think that if Zelensky did that, it would probably mean the end of his political career and the destruction of the legacy that he's built as such an effective uh, wartime president. So it's very, very hard to see a compromise happening over here. I think that if the Russians did, however, concentrate their forces along one or two axes, like really focusing on Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbass, with a, with a large invasion force, they probably could have achieved significant results. And if they hadn't gone for regime change in Kiev, it was possible that, you know, the Ukrainian uh, military would have mobilized to some extent, but Western arms shipments wouldn't have uh, flown in to the extent to which we, we would have seen. And I think he could have had a lot more of a successful outcome. But he predicted that, you know, all of Ukraine was going to roll over. And he realized that uh, even if he took over Donbass, there was the rest of, the, of Ukraine would still be anti, anti-Russian. And he realized he wanted to change the regime in order to uh, secure Ukraine as part of Russia. And that was his mistake. And, and you know, there were a lot of people here in academia, again, the Mearsheimer type folks like the University of Chicago and people mostly on the right who constantly say, oh, we have to push Zelensky to negotiate. And they don't seem to understand that that doesn't help. If Putin doesn't want to negotiate, all you're doing is asking Zelensky to make concessions before the negotiations begin, which Putin would simply pocket and go on from there. They also think they talk about the you know, forever wars, endless wars. It's the new normal. Wars don't necessarily end with VJ Day or VE Day or with a ticker tape parade. They go on. Israel has been at war all its life. A lot of wars just continue at some level. That's sort of that could be the reality here. You could have ebbs and flows. You could have some kind of frozen conflict. You could uh, during which Putin would try to rearm, but at the same time, the Ukrainians would try to become more of a porcupine. We, we it would be nice and neat to think this just ends, uh, and it ends at a, with diplomats negotiating and shaking hands. But that's probably not actually realistic. Some all are. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that uh, it's going to be a long, long road. And also, it's absolutely correct. I mean, Russia has got so many reasons why it doesn't want to lose face. And Putin's threat to his regime comes from ultranationalists who want general mobilization and victory at all costs, not from the Alexei Navalny's and the liberals who want to end the war. So uh, he has to cave to that domestic audience. So just pushing Zelensky to negotiate and pushing Ukraine to negotiate is only half the problem. And it will just embolden Russia towards uh, more aggression. That's a really, really mistaken paradigm. And uh, yeah, I just unfortunately just don't see a resolution to this happening anytime soon, in part because Global South proposals for peace, like China, Brazil, and what they've offered are seen as concessions and appeasements of Russia, whereas Western offers are kind of uh, viewed with a great deal of mistrust uh, by the Russians. And even Turkey is no longer trustworthy as being held in question right now. Look at all the Russian media attacks on Erdogan saying that we shouldn't have supported him in our re-election because he handed back the Azov fighters and supported uh, Ukraine's NATO membership. So even Turkey may not even be able to play a de-escalation role. And if they can, it's hard to see who can. Yeah, I don't see Putin listening to Erdogan. Really, I don't see him listening to Macron, though Macron thought he would. I don't think see him listening to Schultz. The one person he might listen to, this is a little out of your 
you're, you're Baluik, but you probably have thoughts on it. If Xi Jinping were to say to Putin, here's what I think you need to do, I can't believe that Putin wouldn't take that seriously. That said, I don't know what Xi Jinping thinks is in most in his interest at this point. And I think that's a very hard calculation. Yeah, I think that China wants to uh, obviously look like it's a peacemaker. It's got the global security initiative that's trying to promote. It's just brokered this uh, or just apparently rather piggybacked off of the last stage and by brokering the Saudi Arabia-Iran uh, uh, agreement. And it's talking about, you know, uh, peacekeeping everywhere from Israel-Palestine to Yemen to, uh, you know, uh, African conflicts. So it wants to look like a peacemaker on the world stage. And uh, it might uh, try to pretend that it, by selling this peace plan along. But also, I don't think that China really wants a situation where Russia is kind of defeated or humiliated in some way, or there's any kind of regime change or political change or any kind of unpredictability inside Russia or instability inside Russia. And I think that they'll probably not put too much pressure on Vladimir Putin to uh, really stop this war, unless it looks like things are really spiraling out of control, like Putin is losing, and there's really a risk of Russia kind of uh, developing into uh, having a civil war or becoming a failed state. We've covered a lot of ground. It's been a fascinating conversation, as new would be. Listen, people should definitely pick up and read your books, both Putin's War on Russia and Russia in Africa. And I just want to say thank you again for this conversation. It's great to get to know you a little bit. I'll be following you, and I hope to talk with you again in the future. Fantastic. Yeah, great to uh, speak to you, Cliff, and hope to talk again soon. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this whole conversation here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.